Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Four, three, two, one. I told you before to be careful where you put your legs. I was only trying to be helpful. I can help myself. What are you waiting for? Come on. Come on. What are you waiting for? Come on. Come on. For seven decades, Michael Keane has been among the world's most renowned and recognisable actors. It was just what I needed. A one-inch god with a two-inch penis. The star of classics like Zulu, The Man Who Will Be King and The Cider House Rules. It's a miracle no one was killed. But also films that brought his career to the brink of complete implosion. I made a mistake. Somehow, he has always found a way back. You're a big man, but you're in bad shape. With me, it's a full-time job. In this epic podcast series, we will watch and review every Michael Caine movie, from the greatest hits... You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off! ...to the incredible misses. You failed to maintain your weapon, son. And take a deep dive into the life and work of one of the world's most recognisable film stars. His name is Michael Caine, and no one will forget his name. Behave yourself. To understand how he has made the mark of Cain. Well, you all settled in? Right, we can begin. For God's sake, come in! Hello and welcome to The Mark of Cain, the podcast where we trudge through the dense, steamy jungle of Michael Cain's career in film, watching every movie and hacking away the undergrowth to uncover the best and worst of the great man's life in cinema. My name is Michael Foley and with me as always along this trail is our expert guide, Stephen Black, Chief Information Handler for not only his Twitter stall. I'm trying to set the scene here for what's coming, you know, sort of steamy jungles and lots of trudging. I got that. Yeah, it was very subtle, but I hope the listeners can pick up on it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we are we are still in Kane war movie uh, territory, uh, and this is a particularly sticky uh, episode of this podcast. It's filmed in the Philippines. It's long. It's two hours. More than two hours, as a matter of fact. I've been watching a Mark Kane war movie it, for five hours, if you like. I'm sweating. Hot. hot. Hot, hot, sweaty, and yes, did not mo- make me moist in any way. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm slightly confused. I actually liked this movie as a kid, but I'm not sure where I like this movie anymore. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's quite the thing. Too late the hero. Too late the hero. A Robert Aldrich film. Now, Robert Aldrich, uh, you may know from such marvelous movies as The Dirty Dozen, which I don't like, and whatever <laughs> happened to whatever happened to Baby Jane, which is fantastically insane and off the wall okay. uh, and this is this is an attempt i guess from his own perspective to go back to the glory of the dirty dozen and present us with another group of uh, ill-matched um anti-heroes on the way in, into the jungle to perform a task uh the purpose of that task we we're not really sure why they're having to do it uh, it makes no sense whatsoever um yeah. yeah, it's 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 long. It's over two hours long and you feel every single second, every single bead of sweat. And it's kind of, yeah, it, it's it's um, one of these missions that gives a whole new sort of um, emphasis to the term suicide mission. This really does feel like something that doesn't need to happen. 
and maybe we could say that about the movie as well. But look, I we can get into this. I come from a certain particular place with this as kids. We actually recorded this movie, uh, or at least the last hour of it. It must have been on BBC late one night or something. We recorded the last hour, and myself and my brother as kids watched this over and over and over again. Um, so I still have a little bit of sort of, you know, I've got a soft spot for it, but... Can I ask, is your soft spot because you 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 kind of you you empathise with Denim Elliott's character, the kind of the, the posh officer, given your posh upbringing, being able to fucking afford the likes of BBC One uh, when the rest of us povs in town were uh, were uh, basically standing on the roof in uh, thunderstorms trying to get RT One or RT Two. Well, whatever whatever kind of you know uh, Angela's ashes type lifestyle uh, that she might have had in town is not my business, quite frankly, and. I mean, yes, we certainly did notice a difference in tone and um, sort of um, bearing, if you like, when we went into Mallow from the countryside. But I'd like to point out that our BBC and our ITV back that time was essentially got using a kind of a clothes hanger that was hung off the top of the chimney, pointed towards another clothes hanger that was pointed towards another clothes hanger somewhere over around the east coast of Ireland. So we were picking up HTV and S4C. I had a little bit of Welsh. I had quite a bit of Welsh when I was around 12 or 13, you know. Nosta. Good night, that means, by the way. It's fantastic. Uh, we talked about Angela's Ashes. It was a privilege to go through your own uh, reminiscences yeah. there. I think there's a memoir in this. I really do. I think there is. Definitely. There's, Like I said, there's a, there's a bad book in, in everyone and there's you know <laughs> multiple bad books in some people. So <laughs> There's lots of bad books in me. Anyway, <laughs> speaking of bad things or things that we're not sure would, would actually work in practice, Let's get into this. It's hot and sweaty in the jungle. It's riddled with bugs and crabs and Japanese soldiers all capped off by a suicide mission for Kane and the boys that really kind of doesn't feel like it needs to happen at all. But this is where 70s Kane begins. It's 1970 and it's too late the hero. War. It's a dying business. ABC Pictures presents an Associates and Aldrich production, Too Late, The Hero. From Robert Aldrich, the man who brought you The Dirty Dozen. Too Late, The Hero. Starring Michael Caine. Getting ourselves killed. Isn't going to make any difference to anybody except us. Right. So listen, what is this now? Is this an anti-war movie? Is it a war movie? Is it a class struggle thing? Or is it Charlie Croker from The Italian Job in the Jungle? Or is it just a kind of, uh, hey, Aldrich, make us another dirty dozen that goes completely arseways, not right, wrong? Yeah, it, it it it's it's kind of it's a, a buffet, isn't it? It's like yeah. how much how much of each of these things could I pile onto my plate, and at the end still have something resembling a meal. <laughs> yeah, like it's 1970, so like you know, from an American perspective, and from actually from a global perspective, you know, Vietnam War is huge, and there's a huge anti-war feeling, and we know that Kane has a thing about uh, war movies about making ones that make a make a point although we could say the battle of britain doesn't make a whole pile of a point uh, but certainly with play dirty it's a kind of an anti-hero movie no one really wants to be out in combat and it's kind of the same here um, there's a bit of class struggle kane plays a character with a really str- he's a cockney so he's kind of you know he's bringing that kind of working class 
actor aspect to it again and but it's also like it's a war movie like i mean there are bits of sort of um anti-war stuff but fundamentally it's about going fighting japanese shooting guys and getting back home safely like that's that's it like isn't it yeah that's it um there are references to i mean kane's character uh much like kane doesn't want to be there um Cliff, Cliff yeah. Robertson character Cliff Robertson's character doesn't want to be there either. Um, mm. Nobody, nobody except the officers really think that, that that it's important for them to do what it is that they're that they're doing. Um, everyone outside of Kane, uh, Robertson, and Daniel Elliott Circle is kind of feckless or uh, shifty or you know untrustworthy. Um, the, the Japanese, I mean, the Japanese bay barely get a look, and there's one the the major uh, who's running the mobile disco in the jungle. Yeah, uh, is probably the only Jap- the, the only you know. It doesn't even get a backstory. There's no, no kind of, you know, idea of where he's coming from. It's literally just a bunch of, a whole bunch of lines as he's kind of issuing vague, uh, thinly veiled threats and, so, and sometimes just open threats to the lads as they're trying to escape towards the end of the film. Yeah. Like, so, I mean, this is, I mean, we, I, I, and even at that, like, you know, do we need a backstory for these guys? Probably not. You mentioned the mobile disco there. I think this is a good point to, to get into this. Get into the plot because I'm sure people are going, hmm, mobile disco in the middle of a World War II movie in the jungle. That sounds like a movie that I might actually want to watch. So let us disabuse you of that notion straight away. Now, the plot for Too Late the Hero. Okay, it's 1942. The islands of the New Hebrides is in the Pacific. Uh, Sam Lawson is uh, played by Cliff Robertson. He's sent off to join a British commando unit as an interpreter for a combat mission. He's not too pleased because he's dodged any combat so far. So this is completely not up his street. When he gets there, the British base is like basically at the at the edge of a big, massive open field. No man's land, basically, between them and the jungle that's controlled by the Japanese. And any British that try and get back through that open field generally get cut down by Japanese fire from the jungle. So the mission is to destroy a radio transmitter before an American naval convoy appears on the horizon. Uh, so you know, the Japanese could send a message to their people saying, oh, there's a naval convoy nearby. So instead, they're meant to go uh, send a fake all as well message, destroy the radio transmitter and get back again. It's actually that dull and that kind of pointless. Um, so Denham Elliott, as you mentioned there, Stephen leads this group. Is kind of an, he's an incompetent upper class officer who kills wounded Japanese and has only slightly more regard for his own men. And the rest are a mess of soldiers washed up after the evacuation of Singapore, including McCain as Tosh Hearn, the group medic and the group cynical Cockney. Um, so off they go, encountering Japanese and they're losing members of the squad squad like flies as they go lots of marching lots of jungle lots of sweating uh eventually they reach the japanese base the radio they bring to broadcast this fake message is broken along the way cliff robertson's character flat refuses for for reasons that outside of some kind of conscientious objector thing i don't understand he flat refuses to use japanese radio to broadcast a fake message so that's weird there's a firefight. Denim Elliott gets killed while knocking out the Japanese radio and falls dead in front of Cliff Robertson, staring at him, who's still hiding under a hut, uh, giving Cliff Robertson a dose of the guilt. So the lads have to make their way home. They stumble on a secret airfield, would you believe? Uh, and then the Japanese use, as Stephen says, loudspeakers, mobile disco, to exhort them to give up. And this major Yamaguchi DJ, DJ Tokyo, if you like, um, broadcasts every few hours, tell them to come in, we'll treat you kindly, so on and so forth. Some of the lads give themselves up, but Kane and Robinson, for the purposes of making a movie that lasts longer than two hours, they don't. 
So there's more trudging and chasing, more broadcast from DJ Tokyo. They eventually reach the edge of the jungle in the open field. And at this point, Kane morphs into Charlie Croker from the Italian job with a plan. So they decide to double back, kill the major to create some chaos, to give themselves a chance of getting across the field. Um, you know, they find him no bother, despite the fact that they're kind of trudging through this completely dense jungle. But they find him no bother. They shoot the major in the back and then set off running for home, zigzagging away across the uh, the uh, the open plain. One makes it, the other doesn't. Now, if you don't want to know, if you're still interested in watching this movie and you haven't seen it already, you don't want to know who makes it, because one of them does. And one it's of Michael Kane. Michael Kane makes oh, it. Oh, God. All right. And then at the end of it, he gets there and he's... <laughs> And he gives a speech that I can still recite. Well, when I say speech, it's about a dozen words. He has this, he's, he's asked, who, who's that with you out there? I says, he's bloody here. He killed 15 bleeding Japs, single-handed. <laughs> 30, if you like. And that's it. It's an anti-war, anti-hero adventure flick. Parallels with Play Dirty, Dirty Dozen, but Stephen, I already know what you're going to. Like, it's not, it's not really your thing, really, is it? I, I, I still have a soft spot for it, but it's, it, this is not at all your, your bag whatsoever. Like, much like Kane's experience was making this film, I didn't want to be there, um, and <laughs> it was possibly the most painful shoot, um, our most arduous location, anyway, um, I've had so far. Really? I, hang, I, on, I, hang, I, on, I, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. The most arduous location. Like we've for, gone for through Kane. a lot. So I'm going to, I'm going to say, I'm going to see that and raise you, Southern Georgia in deep summer, hurry sundown. Jane Fonda and all the rest of that. Is it, would, you, would you say this was worse for you than that? Yes, yes, simply because Hurry Sundown was batshit crazy. It was a film that shouldn't exist, yet it was made with scenes that defied belief. Um, so there was enough in there to keep you going, even though you know, everybody in it was horrifically racist. The plot made no sense. Yeah. Um, and it was an overall, overall aseptic experience. This yeah. was a war movie. It is not hard to make a war movie interesting. You just put a lot of action into it so that people are at least every five minutes or so you get distracted from the plot that makes no sense or the very hand-fisted attempts at anti-war sentiment by somebody getting blown up or, <laughs> or, or, or killed it. You know, that's all you ask. This is just fucking boring. It is just boring. It is boarding, boarding, boarding. Every just every minute I felt <laughs> I was there in the jungle with them treading along. I think I may have actually contracted fucking malaria watching this jungle thing. <laughs> God, I don't care who this person is. I do. Somebody just blew up. I which one of them was it that blew up? It doesn't really matter. Um, <laughs> let's go to the next thing that doesn't make sense. Okay, uh, open like. I know, like I'm not, I'm not an army man. You know that, um, yeah. even though I come from a, a, a proud military background. Uh, you do, really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, like I have family, family members who uh, once, who once watched all of the Winds of War uh, series, which just <laughs> practically makes wow. them veterans, as far as as far wow. as my understanding. They've got, yeah. they've, they've got a march every Remembrance Day. They do. They up and down, up and down their garden like little Captain Tom Moore's, just wow. giving their giving their all for the for the war effort. The whole uh, of the winds of war. That's incredible. Wow. I mean, do you know what? They should, I, I presume they've been in a documentary recounting their their experiences and how it affected them later. That whole. Well, to be honest with you, we've more we've more of a stoic background now, and I think the British literature school. We've been more like you know silently repressing that and keeping it. We don't like to talk about that. It, that explains an awful lot. 
I, uh, and not happened lot. O- what happened over there in the front room with the box set <laughs> we don't like to talk about that <laughs> so, I yeah, know, yeah. so let's let's start off at the start now things that fucking annoyed me with this right uh, <laughs> all right i'm just gonna sit Henry, back i'm gonna sit yeah. back for a Henry, while here we'll start we'll start off with henry, henry fonda making a, uh, a cameo and this he's fine he in this have, stop he's fine he's fine i know and he's fine but it's like what the fuck is he doing with like he clearly owed robert aldrich money from a poker game or something or maybe i, I don't know it, it's bizarre but he's there he's there for a couple of minutes he sends he sends yeah, cliff robertson's character off to the new hebrides for reasons unknown uh he's a bit of a layabout we get that we get that impression and uh he's done he's seen no action i guess even though they don't really uh, say that one word or the other but like he says you speak japanese but you also fit the physical description uh, for this like okay go, <laughs> how do you fit the physical description he he's clear, he's a man clearly in his fucking 60s and he's the shape of a fucking tanned jam donut like you know uh, he's not that bad like i think the big confusion you want to send is- this elderly man to his death i mean how cruel how cruel can fucking henry fonda be like this poor old man this fucking the sagging walnut shoved into khakis send them off to his fucking death in the new hebrides like Sagging Walnut is very harsh. Sagging Walnut is very harsh. Look, the big confusion with him is like, again, you're watching it and you're thinking it's 1970. So he's like, he's kind of like a slacker GI with a haircut. He's kind of like, is he a hippie soldier or is he not? Like, actually, I would say, say to you on the, on the, the WhatsApping machine that hmm. like, this is out the same year as MASH. And yeah. like MASH is a movie of its time. This is a throw. This fucking movie could have been made at any year. It's anachronistic. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't belong in 1970, you know? Yeah. Um, something like MASH, which clearly wears, uh, you know, it's set during World War II, but the Vietnam references are, there are clear parallels. This is just, it just doesn't know what the fuck this, it wants to do with with, 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 with his character. I mean, he's referred, Denim Elliott refer, calls him, calls him in this movie set in 1942, uh, accuses him of being a, a long haired, conscientious objector. <laughs> yeah. He's like, go on, you might as well just say, you're one of those Beatles fans, aren't you? <laughs> Dave, well, I see you playing your air guitar, you Jimi Hendrix, you. <laughs> That's the moment. That is the moment where the movie pretty much self-detonates beyond, you know, you're just waiting to see, well, who's going to get back? That's At that point, the movie is over. When when the long-haired, uh, conscientious objector line makes its presence felt about thirty years out of place, it's it's unbelievable. It's do you know what? It's incredible that that got through the edit. Like, how did that make the movie? I don't know. Is it right? Did they want? Did they feel that they were being? I mean, and they weren't being clear clear enough because it's it's all over the place in tone. So you're not you're really not sure until I guess Kane says it in the last few fucking minutes uh, that the, the the last minute of the movie that oh there is a clear anti-war sentiment here. Other than that, it just seems to be a bit you know, it, more class struggle between the ordinary grunts and the uh, the the, the Denim Elliott's character. But even that's kind of lost in the mire of it. And then it wants to have a little bit of action in there as well. And then even kind of the last, the last hurrah at the end where they decide to go out to find uh, DJ Tokyo and, and, and take him out. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. Anyway, what else? What, what else annoyed you? Sorry. I, I, I dragged well, it down the side there. The mission is pure bobbins. Like you don't know why, why you're, why you're, why would completely point. And I guess there's, there's war in a nutshell. They were trying to make that point with play dirty. Ultimately this, 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 nihilistic view that the mission meant nothing and ultimately it came to nothing and your lives are worth nothing but this just doesn't even have the benefit of having a tangible reason for going from point a to point b no if that no. And the lads are clearly first orders are clearly are clearly so shit at killing uh killing people 
Like everybody, <laughs> they shoot and, and, and go down. They're back two seconds later to kill one of their own lads. You know, I don't know how many times they they shot a Japanese soldier in this, and they turned the back, and the Japanese soldiers back up, you know, and killed one of their own men. <laughs> And the only person that they actually, the only person they managed to effectively kill is when uh, uh, Flat Nose McScottface uh, managed to strangle a crazy Ian Bannon. He does it so efficiently. He does it. He he strangles a man with with the uh, with his machete sheath, and that's not a euphemism because that would have been an interesting sh- scene. Uh, mm. Strangles a man with his machete sheath within seconds, uh, and yet they can't shoot a man dead. It's a fair point. Now there's a lot. No, there's a lot of knife action, a lot of stabbing, a lot of silent stuff going on from them. By the way, just for anybody trying to grimly hang on to what we're talking about, flat nose Max Scottface is basically the traitor in the group. He wants to go to the Japanese as quickly as possible, and uh, so he he uh, he kills Ian Bannon, who's uh, one of the injured members, while the other lads are asleep, so they can make a quiet getaway. But uh, what about like there was a couple of lines in it that caught my ear from McCain actually. Uh, he, there's a line like again. The script is just shocking. Like some of the bits where there's banter are just I don't know what they're laughing at at all. But there's a there's one he, he describes Denim Elliott to the to, to the boys as having as much class as a syphilitic road sweeper. Um, that caught my ear. It's it's a terrible line. How do you come? Where do you? Where does that line even start on the page? And then there's another guy. One of the lads, as you mentioned, there just got gets blown up by a mine and and. Someone asks Kane, like, where is he? Because Kane is the medical guy in this, so you know, any of this stuff he gets one like, where is he? You might say he's got us surrounded. I was like, oh my god, almighty. Oh, you might geez. say bits of him are all over the place. You might say he was exploded by a mine which shredded his flesh. And now all those pieces of flesh are around us in a kind of meaty tableau. And can I just add, by the way, just for um just for our own sake, um these are all these bits that we're mentioning weren't in the bits that myself and my brother watched as kids. It was the last hour getting back is what we saw. So this was all new to me this 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 week watching this. Yeah, it's some it's just god awful. Awful, 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 awful. So Denim Elliott gets killed by a a Japanese soldier that he fails to kill efficiently. He cold cocks him twice in the back of the head, doesn't even take his gun off him and then turns his back on him for like, you know, (laughs) the man just wakes up, has a few stretches. You know, like uh, go, you know, gets on the gets on gets on the, the Google, finds out from WebMD whether or not he's he has the the you know the symptoms of a concussion. Emails yeah. HR and says, "Look, I'm going to be off work for a few hours." Then turns around, Denim Elliott is still there waving through the window, getting the guys to come on. And then you know, like fucking goes about shooting. It's fucking ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, there are. I, I I will grant you there are flaws and there are holes in this plot. Anything else bother you? The end. The end, yeah. The whole the yeah, the mobile the disco movie. like. The whole, what's the point of this mobile disco? That basically, the Japanese, for anyone who wasn't watching this, the Japanese essentially spend the last half hour of the movie chasing the 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 Michael Caine and the rest of the lads through the jungle in order to stop them from alerting the British authorities to the fact that there's a secret airbase 
uh, of the island. Mm. And what they do in order to do this is that they have a, a team of lads with uh, radio, uh, with loudspeakers, with a PA system essentially, running through the jungle. They put up this uh, this mobile disco and they broadcast, they broadcast threats going, we look after you lads, give yourselves up um, before we, we murder you. And this goes on for about half an hour. And you're going, what's again? It's it's an insane concept, but also if these lads, we, we get these lads involved in uh, looking after rural bro- broadband, we would be in a hack. The efficiency with which they just fucking you know, every twenty or thirty meters or so, up the trees, out the speakers, you tap 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 in the microphone. Hello, this is uh, this is uh, Radio Kyoto. Like it's yeah. it's fucking nuts. And then while your man's in the wheels of steel, then he gets shot in the back. Yeah, I mean that's the thing that got me about that whole thing, right? Like they've been a uh, dense, dense. I cannot say dense enough about this jungle and yet they managed to find him and I know this is movie time but even in real time movie time you're talking about 10 minutes they found him and they shoot him in the back and they get to run away and it's like what the hell like it's just mad also by the way there was two surviving prisoners that we don't hear anything about (laughs) afterwards we presume they were killed but we don't actually see the two surviving British prisoners not don't even see them who killed are, who, are kept, who, are, who are kept alive for no reason. I Absolutely mean, I'm not, no I'm, reason. I'm not promoting brutal efficiency here, but if you threaten to kill uh, the the two prisoners, if the last one turned themselves in, then you should go ahead. Instead of faking, uh, faking the fact that you shot him by broadcasting the, sh- the shots over the PA system. And by it's, the way, those and those fake executions, by the way, they are shot, but they are shot like with you know he points the gun right beside their ear, yeah. bang. And the lads don't barely flinch. You're like, are you not completely deafened now? Yeah, that's at least tinnitus for the next few years. At the very, very least. Um, anything else? Or will we just pivot yes, back to yes, the end? Yes. Oh, God, there's no, we, more. We, we just, there's more. Just the fucking zigzagging at the end that goes on. Oh, I love the zigzagging. Ten, ten zigzagging. It's like the fuck. And the, the British at the side. It's like the Epsom Derby. Like, it's fucking... <laughs> <laughs> It's such a bizarre way. It's, it's it's shot badly. The lads are kind of zigzagging back and forth. Japanese are shooting, but the Japanese aren't in range uh, of uh, are the British on the other side of no man's land aren't in range of the Japanese, but the Japanese are in range of the British. The other makes no sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a it's a morass. It's a mess. You don't know what's going on. Um, uh, and then this whole bit at the end. Oh, he was he was a hero. He could I'd be like. Jesus Christ, it's just... Stop like, ruining, like, stop now. You're ruining my childhood. No, the, 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 the script writer just high-fived himself after that and just took a lunch break, you know, like, oh, yeah. Oh, that really gets to the heart of the war. Oh, pain. Oh, man's inhumanity to man. Oh, will there ever be a rainbow? Oh, brutality. Yeah, I really I really nailed it here. There's going to be people burning their draft cards in, this, in the streets of America after this movie gets out. And, of course... There weren't because it was a flop. It was a uh, flop. Do you know why it was a flop? Because it was shit. Because it was a shit pile of poo-poo. Yeah, it, was it was just... <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I'm just going to defend the zigzagging a little bit because it is kind of cool. Cliff Robertson turns to Kenny goes, you zig, I'll zag. And they zigzag across the thing. But you're absolutely right because they'd have these overhead shots of them and then straight shots of them kind of running up the field. Yeah. And at points you're kind of going, they're getting really close. And then the overhead shot, they're miles away. They're close. They're, I think they're running backwards as a matter of fact. It's back and forth, back and forth. A little bit like the movies. A bit, it's a, I, have a question for, I have a question for you. I have a question for you, right? You yeah. and I are standing by the edge of Norman's land, right? And yes. We're, we're, we're running away from Japanese soldiers. We've got to make it the other. I say to you, you zig and I zag. 
which if I say you Zig, are you going left or you're going right? I, I, I guarantee I guarantee you we fall over each other three paces out, we get shot in the face each. You're not running in the same fucking direction. Is it not more practical? You go left, I go right in a zigzag fashion. That, yeah, you've just, uh, yeah, you, you, of course it makes sense, but it's not exactly a slick line that rolls off the tongue, you know? Anyway, let's bring it home. Let's bring it home. Cane performance. Cane performance. Uh, yeah. I Very solid cane. Very it good. Is. I, it is. Yeah, he's, he's he's involved. He's sweaty. He hates being there. And if, um, he, like he's, as I said, he says this is the worst location to shoot of all time. Why he is it? Say, I'm going to stop. Let me stop you there now because you, yeah. you said this to me. I'm I'm not really aware of this. Why, what was the problem? This is shot in the Philippines, right? What was shot the problem in the Philippines. Uh, the conditions of the shoot you know, where they were out in location, it was uncomfortable, uh, insects, sweat, humidity, uh, poverty, uh, the catering. Um, the only highlight of the day is when they, you know, genuinely, the only highlight of the day was being able to go back to the officer's mess where they could enjoy a cool drink and food that didn't come from a can. Okay. Uh, they, Aldrich used to shoot in bursts of like 14 to 15 days so that as, uh, in, on the trot so that as could go on four days R&R, which meant they could get out of the country. So they went to like, I think they went to Taiwan and they went to Hong Kong, uh, various uh, activities with uh, involving misunderstandings between um uh, McCain and the uh, daughter of a Chinese dignitary. Um, no, whoa, no whoa, names whoa. are mentioned. No, I Break, I, 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 reverse, I, 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 what? So he's a he's at some uh, it's a party thing in, in Hong Kong, and he's the, the I think it's the host's daughter. Um, comes up to him, uh, apropos of nothing and says, you know, I've always been a big fan of yours. Um, I love your movies. And so he ends up taking her back to the back to his gaff. Uh, next morning, she's gone, but the Chinese authorities raid his uh, flat looking for his papers. And um, the guy in charge uh, says to him, uh, uh, you're, you're, you're Michael Caine. Um, I, you know, I, 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 I'm, no, I'm known as the Chinese Alfie. <laughs> and, right. Okay. Uh, McCain goes, oh, that's great. It, it, your man was disappointed to note that there was no, uh, there was no, there were no ladies present on site, even though McCain, you know, wanted to say, well, actually, you just, you just missed her. Wow, wow. The, uh, then the other story in order is that he was at another party in uh, in the Philippines, and the host, who uh, the 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 wife of the host, uh, who was a dignitary with many armed bodyguards, uh, accosted him in the jacks, one of the bathroom stalls, placed one hand around his neck and the other down, as he says in his own word, or uh, his trousers to a very sensitive part of his anatomy, which I'm assuming was his penis, unless he's a unless he's a very sensitive anus. But we've I've yet to get that part to get to that part of the book, uh, so. <laughs> Discretion being the better part of valor, he did a runner. And my final anecdote, because it's it's my turn and the anecdote uh, wheel of fortune. This, this is great uh, stuff. This is great. I know, I know. He was. They were. Fly, they were uh, while they were on location. Cliff Robertson won an Oscar for his role in Charlie, uh, which is an adaptation of I think it was Flowers for Algernon, okay, uh, which was a very popular book at the time. Uh, but he Aldrich wouldn't let him offset to go to the states to accept the Oscar. So uh, what he had done because he knew he'd be meeting the press when he got off the plane. He had a, a local carpenter make a wooden Oscar for him, so he had something to be carrying down the flight oh. of the steps for the. So he was walking. So they got off the flight. Uh, Robertson was in front of the cane, and as he was going to the steps, he saw Gregory Peck from who was oh. the president of the, of, of the of the of the academy at the time was there, ready waiting for him with his Oscar. After so, Oscar. Yeah, so Cliff Robertson just took took his wooden Oscar and fucked it behind him and flaked Kane right in the forehead, causing a considerable a considerable gash. <laughs> oh man! So that's oh, my turn on the anecdote. Going on. Anecdote that was outstanding. I have only yeah. one. I've only one. No, just when you were talking there, one jumped into my head. There was I think he was at another party. I'm going to say in the Philippines as well. Um, 
where he, he was getting dirty looks from the hostess and he couldn't understand why he was getting such awful looks. And it eventually turned out that she thought that everybody was calling him Mr. Kane. She thought she thought if, she didn't know who he was. And she thought everyone said Mr. Cocaine. She thought he was selling drugs and he had to sort of, there was a whole sort of a confusion around that. But um, his, his life at this point, like he goes, he goes to the Philippines. Um, he had been in a relationship with uh, the soon-to-be Mrs. Bianca Jagger, um, which was sort of, you know, Bianca Jagger wouldn't have spoken overly kindly of their time together, um, whereas McCain was very complimentary. He said she was you know, the most intelligent girl in town. I think he, he said she, he, he met her in uh, I think he met her in Paris and they moved to London and so on. But anyway, it was on this shoot that he met um, Minda Feliciano, who became his next girlfriend. So at least, I mean... You know, he might never have wanted to go back to the Philippines again, but, you know, at least he came home with a girlfriend. I'm, lo- I'm, lo- I'm loving our transition into a Daily Mail podcast. This is great. <laughs> I think it's interesting, though. It's interesting what's going on with him around these things, you know. Um, he does give, like, you're right, he's, he does give good performance, some good cane shouting and pointing early on. There's a kind of a cockroach race or something where Ian Bannon's character comes in, brings his boot down on the runners and riders, and Kane is crossing, he's pointing, he's, he's doing all that, and we get perfectly pitched Charlie Croker towards the end. Like, again, he's kind of, to me, he's kind of carrying another movie on his back and bizarrely not really used very much. By the, I mean, he really doesn't become the main, the main kind of centre point of the movie until like the last third of it. Why they don't use him earlier than that? Yeah, I, given the fact that he's top billing, he's the lead in this. Like, but it's Cliff Robertson who gets most more more screen time, or his character certainly gets more attention in terms yeah. of like what passes for a character development in it. But yeah, Mark Sodakian. Anyway, what you think? Um, look, I'm I'm going to be interested to hear what you said because look, I'm obviously coming at it from a slightly different angle, having watched the thing as a kid and stuff. I would still, I would still, I would, I would be a high six heading for a seven, to be honest. Yeah, I go for a six. I go for yeah. six in this. I think like, he's a good. I think he's good in it. I think it's driven by his absolute hatred and loathing of the locations. It really uh, fits into a man, a uh, character who does not want to be in this uh, theater of war. Yeah, yeah. Like he, he, it's, it, you're right. Like he, he's, um, he does his best with what he's, with how he's given, and he, he really does do quite okay. Like six is kind of in the realms of other movies we've watched so far. So like kind of billion dollar brain as Harry Palmer's kind of six-ish kind of performance, you know? So I, th- I think he personally, I think he's slightly better than that, but I, yeah, six is, six is good by me. You mentioned before, it's a complete box office fail in America. I presume that's why Henry Fonda and Cliff Robertson was probably given a bit more screen time to try and up that because the rest of the cast is essentially uh, British war movie actors uh, and British comedic actors and so on, and the likes of an Ian Bannon who who would who would have had a big who would have had a big reputation uh, in the UK at the time, huge success in the UK, but it it completely didn't do a dime in America. Um, some of the reviews, I mean, Gene Siskel, who has who's run who's run a skewer through a few Michael Caine films at this point now, <laughs> he gave this film one star out of four, kind of basically repeating what you're saying, you know, the essence of an action film is action. And that's precisely what's missing. Um, and that's kind of the, that's sort of the the tone of the whole thing, that it's all bland competence, uh, I think is described as uh, by by a guy in Variety, Arthur D. Murphy in Variety, bland competence, which I think is, is pretty much it. But um, so that's that one. 
Will we tag on Simon Simon? Yeah, we'll do Simon Simon very quickly because uh, it is a very quick cameo. This is uh, hilarious, and I put that in quotation marks, a uh, silent short film. This is There's some sort of resurgence of this as a format in the in the, in the the late 60s, early 70s of these short uh, silent movies with a rake of uh, Br- uh, British celebrity comedians in it. Uh, this one is Simon Simon. The, it doesn't matter about the plot. Essentially, Mick Cain is in the first minute of it. Uh, he has a beard. He is outraged when the uh, main character of the, this movie uh, papers over the bottom half of Clay Darty's uh, movie poster. That is it. In terms of yeah. his efficacy, he looks angry. He's wearing a beard with full competence. It, it, I, I flash back to my own. Uh, I, I empathize because I once had a beard. So, you know, right. I was able to empathize with his character. Um, yeah. And he, yeah, I think his turn was, was, was convincing. It was like, yeah, 10 out of 10 from the yes. crazy turns. Angry so, men, angry men wearing beard. Yeah, pretty much. I'm going yeah, to give it the yeah. old, uh, the old football substitute thing. I don't think he's long, he's he's not on long enough to rate really. But we no. will see the beard uh, in the next movie. Next movie is going to be the Last Valley, uh, which is Omar Sharif and Kane. And you know, another one for the kids. Uh, back to the 1600s for the Thirty Years' War. So the, you know, it's got Brian Blessed in it. It's got Omar Sharif in it. That was sure. That was surely uh, uh, tickle your uh, epic dingle. Tickles my epic dingle and must surely tickle your bridge related dingle a man a man reared in a house of bridge yes uh, uh, many many bridges many bridges many bridges okay so go go look for the last valley have a look at it's out there online uh, we're moving into 90 this is brought out like in just in January 1971 so we're moving into the 70s now uh, but trudging sweatily quite tired and, and wheezing a little bit so as usual if you want to go away and find The Last Valley watch it and if you have any questions uh, hit us up on Twitter at Mark of Kane 2 um, ask us any question about the movie that you like um, and maybe about our personal lives Mick would love to hear uh, any personal remarks about his personal appearance hygiene private life anything really he's an open book I am I am I am I actually am that's it we'll see All you again right. next week thank you bye bye take it easy That's it for this week's episode. Thanks for listening. Make sure to like and subscribe. Maybe leave a comment. Only nice ones, though. Mean comments will make Alfie cry, and no one wants to see that. The Marco Kane podcast is written, researched, and presented by Stephen Black and Michael Foley, and edited by Andrew Foley. Music is composed by Stephen Black. If you'd like to get in touch, you'll find us on Twitter at at News and at MarcoKane2. And if you enjoyed this episode, you'll find all the rest wherever you get your podcasts. The Marco Kane is a Mallow News 2 Cubes production. See you next time. Come on.